Hello, I'm Stephen McCaffrey, Professor of Law at the University of the Pacific, McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento, California. As a member of the United Nations International Law Commission, or ILC, I served as the Commission's Special Rapporteur for the topic of the law of the non-navigational uses of international watercourses from 1985 to 1991, the year in which the ILC adopted a full set of draft articles on the topic on first reading. In this lecture, it's my pleasure to provide an overview of the background and content of the 1997 United Nations Convention on that subject, and to say a few words about the influence of the Convention. First, let me address the Convention's origins or provenance. The Convention was negotiated in a working group of the Sixth Committee, the Legal Committee, of the UN General Assembly in 1996 and 1997. The negotiations were based on draft articles prepared by the International Law Commission over a 20-year period, from 1974 to 1994. The watercourses topic had been referred to the ILC by the General Assembly in 1970. In that year, the General Assembly adopted Resolution 2669, entitled Progressive Development and Codification of the Rules of International Law relating to international watercourses, in which the Assembly recommended that the ILC, quote, take up the study of the law of the non-navigational uses of international watercourses with a view to its progressive development and codification. In words that could have been written today, the General Assembly underlined in the resolution, one, that water, owing to the growth of population, and to the increasing and multiplying needs and demands of humankind is of growing concern to humanity. Two, that the available freshwater resources of the world are limited. And three, that the preservation and protection of those resources are of great concern to all nations. In fact, this was not the first time the General Assembly had recognized the need for study of the subject. Just over 10 years earlier, in 1959, the Assembly adopted Resolution 1401, in which it stated that it was, and I quote, desirable to initiate preliminary studies on the legal problems relating to the utilization and use of international rivers with a view to determining whether the subject is appropriate for codification. The ILC's work uh, is what I would like to turn to now. This work was guided by a succession of five special rapporteurs, Richard Kearney, Stephen Schwebel, Jens Evanson, myself, and Robert Rosenstock. The work was, of course, heavily influenced by state practice, as largely reflected in a collection of documents published in the United Nations Legislative Series in 1963 that was prepared by the UN Secretariat. The volume, entitled Legislative Texts and Treaty Provisions Concerning the Utilization of International Rivers for Other Purposes Than Navigation, contains an invaluable collection of laws and treaties and was later updated in summary form in a document published in the 1974 yearbook of the International Law Commission. As is its general practice when initiating work on a topic, the ILC in 1974 circulated a questionnaire to United Nations member states seeking their views on various issues related to the watercourses topic. 
1976, the Commission decided it was not necessary to determine the scope of the expression, international watercourse, at the outset of its work. In fact, this was not done until the ILC adopted a full set of draft articles on the topic on first reading in 1991. In 1994, the Commission completed its work on international watercourses, adopting a full set of 33 draft articles on second reading. The ILC also adopted a companion resolution on confined transboundary groundwater, which recommended that states be guided by the principles contained in the draft articles in regulating this form of groundwater. The Commission submitted the draft and the resolution to the General Assembly with a recommendation that a convention be elaborated on the basis of the draft articles. On the recommendation of the Sixth Committee, the General Assembly decided in 1994 to, and I quote, convene a working group of the whole to elaborate a framework convention on the law of the non-navigational uses of international watercourses on the basis of the draft articles adopted by the International Law Commission. I now turn to the main subject matter of this lecture, the Convention itself. The Convention was negotiated in the Sixth Committee, convening for this purpose as a working group of the whole, as contemplated by the Assembly's 1994 resolution. The working group met for three weeks in October of 1996 and two weeks in March and April of 1997. The negotiations were open to all UN member states as well as states that are members of specialized agencies of the United Nations. The convention is divided into seven parts containing 37 articles. The seven parts are as follows. Part 1, Introduction. Part 2, General Principles. Part 3, Planned Measures. Part 4, Protection, Preservation, and Management. Part 5, Harmful Conditions and Emergency Situations. Part 6, Miscellaneous Provisions, and Part 7, Final Clauses. In addition, an annex to the Convention sets forth procedures to be followed in the event that states have agreed to submit a dispute to arbitration. I'll now review in summary fashion a number of the Convention's key provisions and principles. I should mention at the outset that the Convention follows very closely the text of the draft articles prepared by the International Law Commission. Many articles, in fact, were unchanged by the working group. First, let us consider Article 2 of the Convention on use of terms. Article 2 defines the concept of international watercourse by defining first the term watercourse, then the expression international watercourse. The term watercourse is defined broadly to mean, quote, a system of surface waters and groundwaters constituting by virtue of their physical relationship a unitary whole and normally flowing into a common terminus. It will be noted that importantly this definition includes groundwater that is hydrologically connected with surface water, which is in fact the case for much of the world's groundwater. International watercourse is then defined as, quote, a watercourse parts of which are situated in different states. A second question is, what is the relationship between the Convention and other agreements between states sharing one or more watercourses? Article 3 of the Convention addresses this question. It performs four functions. 
First, Article III makes clear that the Convention does not affect the rights and obligations of parties to it under pre-existing agreements. However, it encourages parties to the Convention to, quote, consider harmonizing existing agreements with the, quote, basic principles of the Convention. The second function performed by Article III is to indicate that parties to the Convention may, quote, apply and adjust its general principles to the specific characteristics and uses of particular international watercourses through specific agreements, which the Convention calls simply watercourse agreements. In this way, Article III implicitly recognizes the framework character of the Convention. It constitutes a general framework of principles and rules governing all international watercourses, which may be applied and adjusted through specific agreements to suit the characteristics and uses of particular watercourses. The third function of Article III is to make clear that where only some of the states sharing an international watercourse enter into an agreement concerning that watercourse, the agreement may not adversely affect the uses of other states on the watercourse without their consent. The fourth purpose of Article III is to cover the situation where one of the riparian states on an international watercourse believes that application and adjustment of the Convention's provisions is required because of the special characteristics and uses of a particular watercourse. In such a case, Article III allows that state to trigger consultations among the states sharing the watercourse with a view to negotiating an agreement concerning that watercourse. Article IV goes into additional detail concerning the states entitled to participate in specific watercourse agreements and in consultations and negotiations relating to them. Now we come to part two of the Convention entitled General Principles. Part two is introduced by Article V, Equitable and Reasonable Utilization and Participation. This provision reflects what many regard as the cornerstone of the law in this field. Indeed, the International Court of Justice referred to this principle several times in its well-known judgment in the Gabchikovo-Najmaros project case decided in September of 1997 just four months after the Convention was concluded. In particular, in a passage of that judgment that is of central importance for our purposes, the Court referred to what is called a state's, quote, basic right to an equitable and reasonable sharing of the resources of an international watercourse, unquote. In so doing, the Court recognized the fundamental nature of the principle, thereby putting to rest any notion of absolute sovereignty over the waters of international watercourses that happen to be, for the time being, within a state's territory. Interestingly, although it was invited to, the court made no uh, similar reference to the so-called no-harm rule reflected in Article 7 of the Convention, to which I will come presently. In order to ensure that its use is equitable and reasonable, each state sharing an international watercourse must take into account all relevant factors and circumstances. An indicative list of such factors is provided in Article 6 of the Convention. It bears emphasis that this is not an exhaustive list, only an indicative one. All of the factors may not be relevant in a given case, while others not listed may be relevant. 
Before leaving Articles 5 and 6, I'd like to highlight the principle of equitable participation, which is the subject of paragraph 2 of Article 5. This further elaboration of the implications of equitable utilization is an important contribution of the Convention. It makes clear that, among other things, states sharing an international watercourse have an affirmative obligation to cooperate in its protection and development, and implicitly in its management, in order to achieve and maintain a regime of equitable utilization and protection of the watercourse. Given that the concept of equitable participation had not appeared expressis verbis in previous codification efforts, such as the Helsinki Rules or resolutions adopted by the Institute of International Law, it came as a surprise to some that the International Court quoted paragraph 2 of Article 5 in its entirety in the gabchikovo najmaros judgment. This confirmed the importance of the principle. The next provision of the Convention is Article 7, obligation not to cause significant harm. In the negotiation of the Convention, the formulation of this provision proved to be more difficult than any other. At issue was the relationship between the obligation not to cause significant harm under Article 7 and the obligation of equitable and reasonable utilization and participation under Articles 5 and 6. Some states were of the view that the principle set forth in Article 7, which I will refer to for convenience as the no harm principle, should take precedence over that contained in Articles 5 and 6, which I'll refer to simply as the principle of equitable utilization. Other states were of precisely the opposite view, that in the event the two principles came into conflict, it was that of equitable utilization that should take precedence over the no harm principle. At the risk of oversimplifying a complex debate, I can say that upstream states generally favored giving primacy to equitable utilization whereas downstream states, in general, preferred giving controlling weight to the obligation not to cause significant harm. Agreement on the text of Article 7 was achieved only at the end of the working group's second session. The text that emerged from the debate introduced changes into both paragraphs of the, art of the article, as adopted by the ILC, but most changes were made to paragraph 2. The final formulation of paragraph 2 of Article 7 essentially, and I would submit realistically, takes the, uh, takes the sharp edges off of the no harm obligation. I say realistically because no legal system of which I'm aware absolutely prohibits the causing of harm. There are always qualifications, defenses, surrounding circumstances and the like to take into consideration. The effect of paragraph 2 is finally formulated is that if state A does cause significant harm to state B through her use of a shared watercourse, state A must do her best to eliminate or mitigate the harm, quote, having due regard for the provisions of Articles 5 and 6. And, quote, where appropriate, state A is to discuss with state B, quote, the question of compensation. This compromise language reflects the reality that the two principles are not actually at odds with each other, but are in fact complementary, with equitable utilization serving as the overarching principle. This is evident in particular in the requirement that in taking all appropriate measures to eliminate or mitigate harm, state A is to 
have due regard for, that is, to be guided by the provisions of Articles 5 and 6, which is to say that it is to be guided by what is equitable and reasonable in the circumstances. Thus, in resolving a situation in which significant harm is caused to a state, the states involved are to be guided by the principle that, overall, each state's utilization must be equitable and reasonable vis-a-vis -vis the others. This approach is, in fact, consistent with that followed by the International Court in the gabchikovo najmarosh project case, which emphasized the striking of a reasonable balance between the state's uses rather than a sharp-edged prohibition of harm. Other provisions in Part 2 may be noted more briefly. Article 8 states a principle that is essential to the effective implementation of most of the Convention's provision, provisions, the general obligation to cooperate. Article 9, likewise, requires a process without which it would be difficult for the principle of equitable utilization to function, the regular exchange of data and information. Article 10, on the relationship between different kinds of uses, does two things. First, it provides in paragraph 1 that no one kind of use of an international watercourse enjoys inherent priority over other forms of use. This provision was believed necessary since at one time navigation was often given such priority. Second, paragraph 2 of Article 10 deals with conflicts between uses providing that any such conflict is to be resolved with reference to Articles 5 to 7. Paragraph 2 goes on, in an interesting and important clause, to provide that in resolving a conflict between uses, quote, special regard is to be given to the requirements of vital human needs. Thus, any res resolution of a conflict between uses should not ignore the basic needs of humans for water which are expressed in the human right to water, recognized by the Committee on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights in its General Comment 15, adopted in 2002. Part 3 of the Convention, Planned Measures, elaborates in considerable detail on one of the Convention's most fundamental principles, that a state planning measures that may adversely affect another state sharing the water course must give timely notification to the potentially affected state and, where necessary, enter into negotiations and consultations with that state concerning the plans. Part 3 consists of nine articles which attempt to cover all of the significant implications of such an obligation. It's important to emphasize that the obligation of prior notification of plan measures does not imply a veto over those measures. Instead, it entails a process which leads to consultations and, if necessary, negotiations concerning the measures. This form of cooperation is not only essential to maintaining an equitable and reasonable balance of uses in an international watercourse, including ad adequate protection thereof, but it is also essential to maintaining harmony among co-riparian states. Part 4 of the Convention deals with protection, preservation, and management of international watercourses. In the negotiations, only minor changes were made to the ILC's texts of these provisions. The first article in Part 4 is very general, but potentially quite powerful. Entitled, Protection and Preservation of Ecosystems, Article 20 provides simply, and I quote, 
watercourse states shall, individually and where appropriate jointly, protect and preserve the ecosystems of international watercourses, end quote. It's indeed essential that watercourse ecosystems be protected and preserved if the watercourses themselves are to support human and other forms of life. Other provisions in Part 4 deal with prevention, reduction, and control of pollution, prevention of the introduction of alien or new species, protection and preservation of the marine environment, management, regulation of flow, and installations such as dams. These are all important provisions, but unfortunately time constraints prevent me from addressing them individually. I will make an exception, however, for Article 24, management, both because of its importance and because the term management often fails to arouse much interest. Joint cooperative management of international watercourses is crucial to their protection and optimal use, that is, to maximizing the benefits cooperation uh, co pardon me, co-riparians co may achieve from the watercourse while ensuring its protection and preservation. Implementation of many of the provisions of the convention would be greatly facilitated if it could be accomplished through a joint mechanism. This is the case, for example, for the regular sharing of data and information, notification of planned measures, and equitable utilization itself, since the very notion of equity implies a balance which can only be struck if there is some knowledge of what is happening on the other end. Part 5 of the Convention, Harmful Conditions and Emergency Situations, contains one article on each of these subjects. Thus it covers problems that unfortunately occur all too often, such as floods and chemical spills. The title of Part 6, Miscellaneous Provisions, hides the fact that it contains several important substantive provisions. Part 6 includes articles on obligations in time of armed conflict, the possibility of using indirect procedures, the treatment of data and information that is vital to national defense or security, something called non-discrimination, and settlement of disputes. I'll focus here on the two latter provisions. Article 32, non-discrimination, is in reality a provision on private remedies. It requires that watercourse states not discriminate in granting access to judicial or other procedures to those who have suffered significant transboundary harm or the serious threat thereof due to activities related to an international watercourse. The provision is thus designed to allow a citizen or resident of state B who is harmed or threatened by watercourse-related activities in State A, to seek relief through the courts, for example, in State A. This could help to resolve disputes efficiently and keep them from escalating to the state-to-state -state level. Settlement of disputes is the subject of Article 33. This provision makes available the standard measure means of dispute settlement including negotiation and agreement to submit a dispute to arbitration or the International Court of Justice. Its innovation, however, is compulsory fact-finding. Since international water disputes will often turn on facts, Article 33 provides that if a dispute cannot be resolved through negotiation, one of the states involved may request that it be submitted to impartial fact-finding.
which is in fact a conciliation procedure. The fact-finding process, generally conducted by a three-member commission, results in a report containing its findings and, quote, such recommendations as it deems appropriate for an equitable solution to the dispute which the parties concerned shall consider in good faith, end of quote. It is hoped that this provision will help to resolve many disputes effectively and efficiently and before they become intractable. Article 36, entry into force, requires that 35 states ratify the convention for it to enter into force. As of the summer of 2008, when this lecture was prepared, the convention had been ratified by 16 states. While the number of ratifications is gradually increasing, the fact that the convention is not yet in force raises the question of its present legal and practical effect. As to its legal effect, the convention is widely viewed as a codification of customary international law with respect to the most important obligations it embodies. Those would include equitable and reasonable utilization, the obligation not to cause significant harm, and the obligation to provide prior notification in respect of planned measures. Thus, all states sharing in international watercourses would be bound by these basic obligations. As to the Convention's practical effect, both the Convention itself and its preparatory work have had significant influence in the context of disputes between states as well as in the negotiation of treaties concerning international watercourses. I've already mentioned the references to the Convention by the International Court of Justice in the Gabchikovo Najmaros case. Second, the Convention or its preparatory work has had influence in the negotiation of a variety of treaties, such as the 2000 Revised Protocol on Shared Watercourses of the Southern African Development Community, or SADC, the 2002 Senegal Water Charter, and the 1995 Agreement on the Cooperation for the Sustainable Development of the Mekong River Basin, which relied on ILC uh, preparatory work. Also, I should mention the draft Nile River Basin Cooperative framework agreement, which is in process. Thus, the UN Watercourses Convention and its preparatory work have already had a significant impact on the practice of states in the field. In conclusion, the 1997 United Nations Convention on the Law of the Non-Navigational Uses of International Watercourses represents an important contribution to the strengthening of the rule of law in this increasingly critical field of international relations and to the protection and preservation of international watercourses. In an era of increasing water scarcity, due in significant part to population growth and the effects of global climate change, it is to be hoped that the Convention's influence will continue to expand and that it will one day in the not too distant future enter into force. Thank you very much.